What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. This is just a reminder that you can go over to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain every Wednesday evening at around 8 o'clock, and you can listen to us live, and you can actually also donate to us if you'd like. It does help support the channel, keep things running. Travis Croft, how are you, sir? I am fine and dandy. Um, never a more apt description has been made. I am a hammer looking for a nail. <laughs> They say to, uh, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, <laughs> we've got a, um, I think we've got a pretty good show this week. Um, we have. Like we've, we've actually got three things that we've both seen. Yeah, we, we've uh, we've uh, converged kind of on purpose, I guess. <gasps> Are we planning things now? Fuck that. No. We don't plan. <laughs> no, Tried we've that got. Once, didn't like it. We've got our new chain movie following on from Only the Brave last week. We followed Josh Brolin to 2008's Oliver Stone movie W. Um, We have got the season finale of WandaVision. And we both went to the cinema to watch an actual new movie release of Chaos Walking starring Tom Holland, Daisy Ridley and directed by Doug Lehman. And of course, don't forget Mads Mikkelsen. The uh, um, very true. The uh, probably like the only other person who plays as many villains as him uh, is um, Christoph Waltz and Ben Mendelsohn. Yeah, that's true. And apparently, uh, Mads Mikkelsen has been hired to replace Johnny Depp as Grindelwald in the um, Fantastic Creatures Harry Potter saga. They should start like their own Legion of Doom. Legion of Doom actors, actors division, right? Like people who only play bad guys. Yeah. Uh, Clancy Brown. Yep. Um, those three guys. Clancy Brown, Mads Mikkelsen, Ben Mendelsohn. Um, who was the other one we were talking about? Uh, Christoph Waltz. Christoph Waltz, yep. Um, who else? Like, who, who would be the fifth person on, on this Legion, oh, Legion um, of Doom? What's the guy's name? Um, is it Jeff Leong? He always, like, he's been in about 400 million movies, and he's always, like, the uh, kung fu bad guy. He played about 15 different people in... Uh, uh, Jeff Hong, I think his name is. Jeff Hong. Um, uh, he, he was in um, he was in that Big Trouble in Little China. He played uh, the floating oh, guy. Oh, James Hong. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. James Hong, yeah. Yeah, he would be he would be a good very good addition. He'd be a very good addition. Um anyway, yeah. look, if you've got somebody, if you if you, you think someone who should be in the cinematic Legion of Doom with Christoph and the guys, <laughs> it always plays bad guys because like uh, uh, spoiler alert for for a chaos walking, as soon as Matt Mickelson's on walked onto the screen, I'm like, oh uh, uh, he's a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. It it the the one I, I reckon that M. Night Shyamalan should actually just do a movie with all of those people that we mentioned. And the twist is that they're actually all nice guys. <laughs> so that's in the just end, it. In the, end, in the end, the villain's Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> if Tom would do it. I reckon he'd do it. I mean, he does occasionally do some weird choices, like that Len Grossman character from Tropic Thunder. That was, that was I was always looking forward to the Len Grossman movie they were going to make and never did. Yeah, yeah, we couldn't make it now because I think it was very loosely based on one of the Weinsteins. Um, yeah. And I don't yeah. think that would fly today, considering we know what we do. Yeah. 
Well, unless it was a complete and utter character assassination style piece. Even then, Which I think it could kind of work. But it, yeah, it would be controversial. But let's get on with the show. Let's get straight into our review of W. So this is, as I said at the top of the show, this is the 2008 Oliver Stone movie. And I remember when this was first announced, there was a lot of hoo-ha. People were kind of going, wow, Oliver Stone is really anti-Republican. He is anti-war. You just look at some of the movies that he's made in the past. He has been very, very open about his political stances against uh, kind of war and um, the advanced like a radical right and a lot of people are kind of wondering how brutal is he going to be with george w bush president former president of the united states of america um who was kind of made famous because he was president during september the 11th as well as his um war on terror and uh, the axis of evil and a few taglines that really summed up um, a lot of the most memorable elements, shall we say, of his career. This is an interesting movie because it's not a biography of George W. Bush. I don't think it ever was trying to be. It's kind of. I mean, it kind of does cover some of the important moments in his life. Yeah. So, wh- what what are your thoughts on this movie? I just like to start by saying anybody who was scandalised by the fact that uh, Oliver Stone was anti-Republican, anti-war, uh, are going to be shocked when they hear that the sun is expected to rise tomorrow morning. Because of course <laughs> he fucking is. Yeah. Of course he fucking is. He always has been. Have you seen fucking Platoon? I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> interestingly, he and Bush were both in Yale's class of 1968. So they would have been graduating in the same year mm. had Stone not signed up to go to Vietnam himself, which he did. Um, what do I think is him? Um, I honestly kind of think it's a story of two, uh, a game of two halves. Mm-hmm. Um, part of his film is except, exceptionally well done, I think. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, I think, kind of falls a little bit flat. Um, the part that's really well done is... The story of George Bush, who where he came from. So George Bush pre pre president mm-hmm. is quite interesting, uh, I think, and reasonably really well done. Uh, mm-hmm. In the sense, it's a it's not a character assassination. No, it would have been something that would have surprised people when this thing came out because yeah, people need to remember this film came out in October two thousand and eight, I think. So Bush was still in office. Yeah. In this film for another four months or so. He, was, yeah. he couldn't run again, so he was a land up president. So we all knew at that point in time he wouldn't be president, you know, beyond January 2009. Um, uh, but the fact that he was making a biopic uh, about a sitting president while that president was still in office was, you know, mind-blowing he had made yeah. um, presidential document biopics before mm. presidential films before he made jfk which is mm-hmm. overrated mm-hmm. uh he made nixon which i've never seen but uh, no, um but both those guys were obviously and you know, jfk was obviously dead uh <laughs> and nixon i think was well and truly out of office and i think 
probably or maybe dead as well. I um, think it's charming that you think JFK is dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's working in the he's, he's working in the Falklands of Tupac. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, I think we, we what is interesting and what I enjoyed most about it this time and last I saw it, which is probably when it came out, um, is it actually reasonably almost sympathetic at times to a character of George W. Bush. Um, a, it's kind a, of an a, innocence to the way that they really display him. He's like one of the one of the things that was a, kind of a linchpin for when he first ran for, for office was that he was the representative that you wanted to have a beer with. Mm. And he does kind of come across as that. So like, I, I've met people like this guy. He's relatively talented, relatively intelligent. He fucks around a lot. He's kind of got a heart in the right place, but he's also trying to bat above his weight kind of thing. And it's, it's it's not an assassination. It's not a parody. It's not an out and out mockery. But it doesn't shy away from showing some of his weaker moments. I, I think it's a, a portrait of a very flawed individual. Yeah, um, a deeply flawed man um, with significant psychological, deep seated psychological issues, or or. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a little bit strong. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the central thesis of Stone's film is this is a man, uh, George W. Bush, who could never live up to the family legacy, for those who don't know. I mean, his dad was president for one term. Um, George H.W. Bush in from 88 to 92, who's vice president um, under Reagan for eight years. He was head of the CIA before that, I think, or at some point during that. Was he, yeah, before that, head of the CIA. Um, trying to remember my timeline here. He was a fucking war hero, as, and that's alluded to in the film. Um, and he's second, gener- third, second, third generation. Before him was Prescott Bush, who, mm. uh, again, the film points out when he's being initiated in Skull and Bones that, um, that Prescott Bush was, you know, one of the founders of that group and, again, uh, a, a highly, you know, rich, famous individual. And I think it goes back beyond him as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not completely au fait with a Bush line. But he come, he's a very famous American family. Mm-hmm. That had this incredible legacy and um, uh, reputation mm-hmm. and respect amongst the American people. Um, and that uh, his father sh- looms large over George's entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in living. He constantly feels like he's living in his father's shadow. And pretty much everything he seems to do seems to be an effort to get out from underneath his father's shadow to the mm-hmm. point of running for president uh, as, an, as, as a way to sort of prove himself of, of being worthy and to be, get out front of that shadow and ultimately uh, acquire his father's love and approval and respect to get his dad mm. to say, I'm proud of you. Um, yeah. Now, I find it a pretty compelling uh, explanation of, of why Bush is the way he was. Mm. Um, don't know how, how anywhere close to the truth it might be. Mm. Um, you sort of alluded to it at the start. Stone is a, a well-known leftist who mm-hmm. had no time for Bush and his wars. Mm-hmm. So, you know, take everything he says about him with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he's saying, yeah, again, it's, it's interesting that he, we're looking at somebody here who is a deeply flawed individual. And I don't mean the film's kicking him in the head for it and going, this guy's a fucking asshole, you know, 
hate him. He's all the things the reasons you'd hate him. Um, it's it's as you sort of it's basically pointing out this guy. This is why he did what he did. This is why yeah. he became who he did. Um, and I mean, I, I I think it's actually a very human story in a lot of ways. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you, and I think. Um, you mentioned it before. This was one of the movies that really um, shone a spotlight on Josh Brolin as an actor. He really does amazingly well with the character of George W. Bush because it's it is a persona that he takes on, and there is a lot of it's it's come through the years now. Now that uh, Josh Brolin has become a very household name and a very well respected actor, it's come through that he is a guy kind of akin to the way that George Bush was presenting himself to the people. Where he is, he seems very open and very approachable. He just seems like a nice guy that you want to have a conversation with, have a bit of a laugh with, and. He's absolutely a great, great fit for the way that they showcase George W. Bush. Um, and he really I mean, okay, does. He got, the, he got the mannerisms and the accent yeah. and the, the speech patterns down perfectly. Yeah, he really did. Because there's very little kind of makeup prosthetics to make him look more like George W. Bush. It was really nice how they used filters to make scenes that they were filming age them so it looks like archived footage without it actually being the case. Um, similarly, um, a great representation of skill from Elizabeth Banks. She was she was given a fairly thankless role in a sense her, her character wasn't given very much to do. Mm. Um, um, but she makes the best of it. Yeah, and then, of course, kind of rounding off the Bush family, you've got James Cromwell, who's something of a bit of a living legend in the acting world he does he's i would say he's kind of the weakest out of the four leads just because it's the the way that he presented george senior is very typical of a lot of james cromwell's elder statesman kind of roles that he's done it's like it still very much works in the relationship and the the repartee that he has with um his son is fantastic um but it's not too much of a stretch from what we've seen uh, from james cromwell previously and ellen really bernstein claim, as well just play himself really you're right i mean bush was a texan as well mm. and he didn't quite have the draw that his son did mm. but if i think back to hearing george bush senior talk he had a very distinctive accent and way of speaking as well and yeah. where if you could close your eyes and hear Brolin talk and almost imagine you were hearing George W. Bush. Yeah. Cromwell just kind of did himself. Yeah. Right? He didn't do any kind of accent or characterization of George H. Yeah. W. Bush. He just kind of he could be playing the president from some of all fears for all we know, right? Like it's just Yeah, yeah. It's 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 kind of a generic position. And Ellen Bernstein Person. Um yeah, she's Peter, she, so uh, she doesn't have much to do. She's what such a great actor. Yeah, she's a really fantastic actor. And anyone who questions that, just go and watch Requiem for a Dream. She's fucking phenomenal on it. But she, the little, again, the little that she has, she comes across strong and um, very much in character. But again, it's not too much beyond the realms of what we've seen from her before either. That kind of um, 
stuck in a ways, egotistical elder states lady, <laughs> which fits for the family, of course. Of course, it fits for for the for the Bush dynasty, shall we say? But um, they still deliver great performances. But whereas it was quite a transformative position for Josh Brolin, the rest didn't do it quite as good a justice and you know we're just talking about the bush family here this has got quite a cast in it with um jeffrey wright um involved we've got um handy newton scott glenn richard draper yeah and um god what's the other guy um Toby toby jones that's the one yes um all really good i was confused a little bit by the mannerisms of Fandy Newton's character. She was playing, I don't know if you remember Condoleezza Rice particularly well. No. I, uh, you're not missing much. Um, <laughs> but she was a fairly high profile member of the Bush um, uh, cabinet. Uh, mm-hmm. I forget exactly what she was, Secretary of State. That was Powell. Uh, I don't know, National Security Advisor, exactly what her role was. But mm. she was high profile. And I felt like Tandy did a good job. I mean, I've seen some people criticize it as it was a parody of Condi Rice. But um, I, I just sort of looked at it straight away. I'm like, that's Condoleezza Rice. I know exactly who she's playing. Okay. A couple of others, you're like, Scott Glenn, I think, was playing um, Wolf, Rums, Rumsfeld. He looks nothing like Donald Rumsfeld. And no effort was made for him to look like Donald Rumsfeld. Mm. Um, mm. So, you know, you go, uh, I think he's supposed to be playing Rumsfeld because. Only Rumsfeld was a big enough dickhead to say something like that. Um, yeah. So, and I'm pretty familiar with the key players of a Bush era. So, um, I thought she was fine. Jeffrey Wright, I thought he did a wonderful job as mm. Colin Powell. Uh, I think he even looked reasonably a little bit like him. Um, yeah. These mannerisms <laughs> and his speech patterns again were were mm. on point. Mm. Absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, I. I think because I remember this movie and I remember going out, uh, going out to watch it in the cinema and thinking this is going to be an interesting movie. And there is definitely a lot of interest. But going back to what you said at the start of um, A Tale of Two Movies, essentially, it has things that it's trying to say. But at the same time, it a lot of it feels very vapid and just kind of floating nebulously and then you get these little elements and some of it still retains that level of poignancy but otherwise it's just kind of like all right i i don't know how successful this movie actually is at doing what it's trying to do it's got a lot of talent involved and people are doing very well with what they're doing but i don't quite know why this movie needed to exist. There's, there's... I, think, I think you're right. I think you're right for, for one reason. That's because they made mm. it too soon. Um, yeah. I think some time, some context, and some understanding mm. uh, with, uh, as, as history goes on um, is necessary to really tell a good story mm. uh, about someone as in, and look, I mean, he's happily forgotten now. Uh, mm. And in some ways, Fondly remembered after what after some of their recent presidents, um, mm-hmm. but, but he is a important figure in a sense that he got them into some two wars mm-hmm. uh, and left in the middle of a depression. Not his choice, in fairness. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think if Stone had waited a year, two years, mm-hmm. 
Because, mm. I mean, this film cuts off before the GFC. And the GFC yeah. was a really important part of his presidency. And yeah. because they started filming is probably at the start of 08, I'm guessing, um, maybe late 07, um, mm. they've kind of missed out the, the last chunk of, yeah. of, of Bush's presidency. So um, it's an incomplete story and they have incomplete context as to who mm. he was, so the length of his presidency. And, you know, uh, I think some time and some context would have made a more interesting story. Then he could have... Mm. So I, you're right, this film doesn't quite pull it off. And I think mm. wherever the line for me is, is between pre-president, post-president. Most of the mm. stuff after his president is just sort of kind of vapid and kind of like, eh, remember when he did this? Remember mm. when he did that? You know, remember the yellow cake speech that was bullshit? Um, mm. Remember the WMDs? And I think mm-hmm. I think what someone's trying to do is trying to draw a line from remember this thing that happened when he was a kid. Now, this is what he's doing when he's in office and mm. he's still in service to the, the, the deeper, you know, thing he needs to be trying to do to make it up to his dad. And mm. because he's doing, he's dealing with two-thirds of the presidency, I don't think he can actually tie the string around it properly. And Yeah. It, feel, it just feels incomplete somehow. I, I, think, I kind of thought to myself, imagine if someone had done this with Trump. Um, in the sense they made a film, yes. you know, in last year. Yeah. Right? They started filming at the start of 2020. Mm-hmm. Or maybe late 2019. Let's say filming wrapped in February 2020 because that's probably eight months. Eight months for post-production for a film is probably. I'd say so. that's fair. Probably, probably reasonable. Like this, yeah. um, you know, editing and dubbing and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> you miss COVID. You miss the election. You miss mm-hmm. the fucking insurrection. You miss the, mm-hmm. the, the whole failing to hand over the keys after the election. I mean, like, so much shit. He yeah. is. He, he, I mean, they, you're making time movies about what he did last year. Yeah. About fucking what he did in March last year. Yeah. Um, so, in fairness, Bush, for, for all his flaws, was nowhere near as bad as Trump. But, um, well, that's arguable. But anyway, mm. um, you know, it's uh, it, it just sort of felt like it was too soon. Mm. And I think also it, it, it would be interesting if he'd made a film about Bush now. Yeah, because I don't know whether it would have the same potential impact if they went back and just did a George W. Bush movie now because of everything that has happened since in the political landscape of America, it all kind of strangely feels tame. And, but at the same time, there are elements of it that you kind of like, uh, I was particularly um, captivated by a lot of the press scenes, the press junket scenes, like where George George is standing there and says, "Uh, you uh, Chinatown lady. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, Whoa! What that? The, the you know, ten years difference. That phrase would have been thrown on every social media site. There would have been hashtag movements for it. It would have been destroyed, and it unless, was unless, nothing in that. Unless, unless Trump said it, because let's face it, he probably said worse at some point. Made fun of a disabled guy. Well, yeah, that, that, that's my point is going, kind of going back and then kind of trying to point out these elements of sexism in the George Bush administration or anything like that. So like, yeah, but Trump's done way worse. I don't I don't know if it's if it's 
looking at it isolating and just looking at the um, the cause and effects of George W. Bush as president and his time going into it, through and after. Looking at him, he is a very interesting character, especially when you look at the father-son relationship and, and that emotional drive that he had. That is in itself interesting. But if you're looking at a political movie, it's just I, I don't know whether it would be able to actually get out from the shadow of Trump anymore. It would be interesting to place it in historical context, mm. um, you know, with what came afterwards, uh, both in, in Obama and, and, and Trump. Mm. Um, it's, uh, it would definitely be, and interesting, like I said, it was actually a little bit in the last 12 months, you kind of made like a little bit of like, I've had literally people to me who oh, I used to have raging arguments about all, you know, fucking Trump, fucking Bush comment, conversations with. They're kind of like, yeah, I could have been Nazi a few times and kind of feel bad about that now that I've got like an, someone who's much, much closer to a Nazi. Like, <laughs> like, like I, my, my good friend Amber, who lives in Sacramento now, she was living in Melbourne in 2004. Mm. We went to a bar one night and then we caught a, um, we shared a cab with a bunch of randos home back to my place because it was one of those uh, maxi taxis with lots of seats. And mm-hmm. so they, they followed about eight people and they're all going in the same direction. And these uh, blokes were sitting behind us, Aussies, and they found out she was an American. And this, I guess, would have been, you know, late 2008. They're like, oh, who'd you vote for? Who'd you vote for? Who did you vote for? Did you vote for Bush? You voted for Bush and you voted for Warmonger Bush. And to this day, those blokes don't know how lucky they are that Amber uh, was feeling reasonably chill that night and didn't kick their ass because <laughs> I would have backed her. <laughs> uh, but that kind of sentiment was around even in Australia, right? Like, mm, mm. Not even an American. These were, no, the only American in the conversation was Amber, who wasn't real keen on um, saying who she voted for. And I should note, in case she ever listens to this, she did not vote for fucking Bush. Um, <laughs> but, um, Hi, Amber. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was just it, it, it was a blood ran hot, hot at the time about mm. who it was. But and, like you go now and you're like, and I've had conversations with my friend Amber going, yeah, maybe he wasn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of take him over Trump any day of a week. At least you knew you were going to get with Bush. Yeah. Um, so um, it would be interesting now that if it well, I mean, this is, as we said at the start, this is a reasonably sympathetic mm. uh, tone film, but it doesn't, it doesn't come out of it smelling great. I mean, I read a quote somewhere that said this film makes um, – uh, Bush less, more of a pawn, but a dark knight, to use a Queen's Gambit reference. Um, okay. I'm going to nod sense, and pretend I understand that. You know, he, he wasn't, he was not the man behind the curtain. He, I mean, he, mm. he was being manipulated by the people around him to make the, you know, to make these kind of decisions, okay. which is all, was always the argument with Bush. It was Cheney who was pulling the strings. Mm. Interesting that this would make a very interesting double feature with Vice. I was going to say, I, I wonder how it sits kind of pairing up the uh, interpretation done by Christian Bale. So interestingly, you... Bale was originally mm. cast as W. Bush in his film. Oh. Peter that would have been an it. interesting moment of uh, history, him playing Bush and then <laughs> playing the guy behind Bush. Would he have gone on the play, Cheney? Who knows? Did he, um, but he was originally cast as George W. Bush, underwent weeks of prosthetics testing before filming began. However, he withdrew from the production at the last minute prompting Oliver Stone to immediately look for a replacement. Mm. 
Um, but I found myself having the same thought as like I would like to. I don't really have time this week to go back and watch Vice mm. straight afterwards, but I they make an interesting pairing because people do yeah. say it was Cheney was the power behind the throne, the brains, the evil genius who orchestrated what you know, basically led Bush by the nose to making all the horrible decisions he made. Mm. Um, but I will say criticism from me. They've made mm. a few. Um, this film finds a lot of ex- a lot of opportunities to slip in famous Bush misquotes. Um, oh yes, like rarely is the question asked: Are our children are our children learning? Um, you know, um, you know, you fool me once, uh, you know, shame on me. Uh, fool me twice, uh, uh, you don't get shamed again. You don't get fooled again. You know, like that yeah. whole like, and it's all out of context. Like, yeah. And I, I, again, I'm, okay, I'm a nerd. I, I, I geek out on US politics significantly. Um, but I know he didn't say that when he was running for governor, you know, are our children learning, you know, like, um, like uh, you know, and the other one, you don't fool me again. Like that was famously said at a, at a press conference, not at a, I think it was in a private conversation mm. um, in the movie. And I'm like, mm, Oliver Stone, you know, you this is, this is a bit beneath what you've been doing today. Like you've mm. kind of been, like I said, we've been hands off a little bit and a, bit more of an intellectual exploration of his character. And now you're going to go kick him the balls a few times before we show him the door. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, part of me wonders if this movie was in originally written to be longer and go into a little bit more. Cause it, it feels like like one of the things, things that we've talked about with um, filming biographies of people's lives is so often they get it wrong by just kind of going, oh, yeah, we're going to try and tell every major element of this person's life from birth to death, um, where I think both of us agree that it is more of a, an important and useful narrative storytelling tool to just focus on one to a three um, in a movie. But at the same time, I feel like it is a little bit informative of the character of Bush that they are at least presenting in the movie, where his attention is somewhat fleeting and jumping around a little bit. And I, I don't know whether I would have, I don't know whether I would have liked it or if it would have served the story better to spend a little bit more time in these, uh, in these periods of time that they focus on in the movie, or if it would feel even more vapid and empty because that's just not the way that they're presenting this story. I agree. I, I think he, he was, he probably would have, I think mean, we talked, I, t- I always come back to, I think the best biopic I can think of in recent memory is, is the uh, Aaron Sorkin, Steve Jobs mm, film, mm. not the Ashton Kutcher one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Although that's not terrible. It's not terrible. It's not as bad as people say it is. I think the mm. Aaron Sorkin version is better though. Um, in a sense, they pick three key moments in, mm. in Steve Jobs' life, and he uses those those the story of those three moments to tell the story about who Steve Jobs was. Mm. And I always come back to this. I think that's a really effective structure for a biopic. I, I think maybe something like that would have worked better here. Um, mm. And if we maybe you could have ended him being an all graders, right? Yeah. Because the story of what happened afterwards was yet to be told, mm. or if you really want to tell the story of his presidency, tell the story of his presidency, but wait until it's done. Yeah. yeah. And I think okay. maybe a key moment there, if you want to tell a moment before he's president and two when he is, one mm. in hindsight might have been the um, 
the the famous speech, uh, you know, the, the Axis of Evil speech. Mm. So that was a big one. It sort of summed up the post nine eleven one, and then yeah. the next one might have been him fucking everything up during the GFC. I, I yeah. don't know. Um, yeah. But but, if you, but use a theme, similar storytelling tactic like that might have been, or structure mm. might have been a more effective way of doing it. Sort of jumping back and forth, forwards and backwards, and who is this person again? And you know, and, mm. and I and I wonder, did you? I mean, you're not and not not a this is not a dick that you, you're just smart enough to be interested in more interesting things than I am. Um, <laughs> but like, but did you have trouble remember knowing who all those people were? Like all yeah, the cabinet members. I, I um I think it was it was around. Bush being elected that I started paying a bit more attention to world politics. And so I remembered some of them, but it was difficult for me to actually keep track of them. I kept on having to bring up IMDb as go, Oh yeah, that's who that is. All right, cool. Yep. I remember some things about them coming out and, but I think that I don't think that's necessarily too much to the disservice of the movie because it is about, w and everyone is is kind of tangential to it but they all kind of merge into just this cacophony that you get these occasional little elements of like oh it's cheney cheney pushing the lead like there's the um the sit down meal that they have and he's talking about uh you know he's like starts just taking the lettuce out of his sandwich and stuff is like that was actually a really good clever way of insinuating this uh, power behind the throne relationship and then it was beautifully highlighted by him just saying oh just one more thing don't forget i'm in charge here and it's like okay yep it's it's very much if you have to say that you're in charge you're not you're in charge yeah <laughs> um, and it was a nice little 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 ego sort of flash mm. you know it was I, mm. I wonder if maybe we could have got David Ayers into direct this and he could have done like a little music video intro of like every single one of the <laughs> Suicide Squad members. style? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, like, Cheney, you know. Uh, <laughs> Likes, dislikes, favourite weapon. <laughs> this is Dick Cheney. He's got my back. Um, <laughs> he saw it captures the souls of everyone it kills. Uh, <laughs> it works. <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> uh, well, David needs a job because, um, yeah. Anyway, um, I, I was wondering it. I'm like, I know who these people are. And like I said, mm. occasionally you're like, just sort of through osmosis, you're going like, mm. I think that's supposed to be Rumfeld. I think that guy's Wolfowitz. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, the other guy, I mean, you know, Toby Jones. I'm guessing it's Carl Rove. And you're like, again, if you weren't super well-versed in US politics, who are these people? Why mm. are they important? Why should we care? You yeah. know, uh, a little bit of an intro, even if it was just like a, you know, a, an on-screen text telling you, this is Carl Rove, special advisor to the president. This is Paul Wolfowitz, national security advisor, yada, yada, yada. I mean, um, especially if, you know, if I took this to show some of the kids I'm going to uni with right now, they'd be like, these kids were fucking Muslim. These kids were like two <laughs> when this oh, film came out, right? Like, you yeah. know, like, um, or, you know, they would barely remember him being president. So, like, yeah. I mean. Um, they're not going to know who these people are. So yeah. unless yeah. you're really keen, um, mm. that part might be a little confusing for you as well. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, overall, I think that it is an effective film and an, an interesting one and worth seeing if it's a period of history you're interested in. If you're interested in US politics like me, that. you'll probably enjoy it. Don't expect mm. too much. It has a 50-odd on, on, on um, 
56, I think, is the meta score. 50 um, on, on IMDb at 56, and it's got a IMDb score of 6.3. Both a little low for me, and maybe 6.3 a little closer to the mark. Hmm. I would have thought 60 to 70 would have been my guess on the Metacritic. It's not bad. Yeah. It's just, as I said, I think they kind of jumped the gun a little bit, and I think that left it to be a weaker product. Um, and and I think he was sort of uh, stones mm. necessity to go through and show us Bush's greatest hits. Yeah. Um, you know, um, probably didn't help. Mm, mm. But um, I think it's, I, as you say, I think it's kind of a, a good movie to kind of pair up if you, if you're interested in kind of political biographical movies um, like Frost Nixon, uh, JFK, Nixon, this you get some interesting representations i'd even say something like um uh the queen um by um stephen frears yes stephen frears those kinds of movies are kind of in a similar kind of ilk where they're they're telling particular stories and having that as like a season to to watch through each of those would be really quite interesting i think it's something recently like the comey rule it's an interesting one. Um, mm. uh, yeah, you mentioned there. I mean, um, again, insanely anti-Trump. Uh, mm. But but I think that one survives the jumping the gun rule because it was made about a particular moment in history. Mm. Mm. Uh, again, though, maybe, maybe you know, it would be interesting to have seen it made this year. Yeah. As opposed yeah. to last year. But I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to influence the election. But I don't like <laughs> I don't think it had much chance of that happening. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else to say on W? No, I don't think so. I'm going to say Richard Dreyfus absolutely hated working with Oliver Stone. Huh. And they don't like each other. Well, there you it's go. Reason why he's not in it very much, I think. I reckon so. I reckon so. But he uh, definitely channeled that distaste into <laughs> a really good representation of he Janie. Used it, I think. He used it well, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Now you're uh, you're up next, and I think mm-hmm. you've got a fair, a fair, lots of exits available. Mm, yeah, yeah, you delivered a lot of options, but I am going for I'm going for one of my favourite actors working today who does not get enough work and certainly does not get enough starring roles. It's Jeffrey Wright. I I, should have seen, I, I don't think I even noticed him until Westworld. Oh, really? Because he, well, I mean, you're not much of a James Bond fan, are you? Yeah. Mm, yeah, because, I mean, he plays um, Felix Leiter in um, in the new Daniel Craig Bond movies. And, again, he's woefully underappreciated in the role. He's fantastic in it. I even like him in um, Lady in the Water, a much maligned M. Night Shyamalan movie. But we are going to 2005. We are going to... The movie that got George Clooney the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, Syriana. This is good. I haven't seen this in a very long mm. time. I haven't seen this since it was in cinemas, and I remember really liking it. I really, really enjoyed it. So for those who don't know, the IMDb plot is a politically charged epic about the state of the oil industry in the hands of those personally involved in and affected by it. This has got another pretty good ensemble cast george clooney matt damon a face we don't really see anymore of amanda pete she she had a moment five minutes there in the middle of a yeah 
Yeah. Now, I think the whole nine yards was her big um her big hit. Yeah, definitely. Um Christopher Plummer, Jeffrey Wright, Chris Cooper, um, and then a few other people that faces you'll go, Oh yeah, I, I recognize them and the guy who played Dr. Bashir in uh Voyager is in it too. Yeah, yeah. Alexander Siddig is directed by Stephen Gagan. And I don't know if I've seen any of his other oh no. He wrote Traffic in two thousand. But beyond that, oh, he did the screenplay for Doctor Doolittle. That's not good. Uh, let's not. Don't mention the war. Um. Yeah, he's <laughs> this. This seems to be um. Oh, he he was one of the writers for one of my all time favorite TV shows, American Gothic. Oh, American Gothic was one of those yeah. shows that promised so much, and delivered yeah. so little. Didn't do anything, but it was possibly my first introduction to Gary Cole. I think I think Scott Glenn was in that as well. Maybe I think he played like the protagonist, didn't he? he was, like, the... Sarah Paulson was in it. I Sheriff? forgot she was in there. Um, I don't know, it was a long, long time ago. Yeah, Gary the... Cole played Sheriff Cole, Lucas, my bad, yeah. Um, uh, of course, Thunberg. Um, hmm. but um, I guess you remember it back of a thing, it was sort of really pumped up and big here. I think it was on after yeah. after X Files on a Wednesday yeah, night, yeah, same um, in the UK. And you're like, and we're like, oh, we're so psyched to see it. We're like, oh. Yeah, so it's like, a, oh, it's just, it's, just, it's just kind of crap. <laughs> yeah. So like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I was looking forward to that. Um, anyway, I am looking forward. I think mm. it might be on Netflix here. Um, it's also available on Prime Video. I know that. So we should be uh, able to readily find it. Yeah, legally good. available, which is a good mm. thing. Yay. Now, let's get on to our other, one of our other regular coming to an end. Uh, sections, WandaVision. Mm, it's finished. It's, it's done. Episode this week. Um, episode nine. What did you make of it? Didn't like it. I went in with very low expectations because I think we covered it a bit last week. No one knows how to finish a series. Mm-hmm. You start a series with an incredible premise. Mm-hmm. Cool story. And you're like, ah, oh, we're going to finish it. I don't know how to do it. Let's mm-hmm. have some sky beams and explosions. Yeah. And that's pretty much what we got. Yeah, this this was the the big ejaculation of stereotypical Marvel movie finishes, where there's a lot of special effects and a lot of oh shit, we need to set lots of things up for what the rest is going to happen. So there's going to be a lot of questions that we don't answer, and it's going to really be annoying. And we're going to do things that just because they have to happen and that's its biggest flaw it's you sent me a text on friday night going uh it's uh age of ultron part two yeah here yeah. i was thinking you're giving me spoilers and you're like <laughs> no, no, it's like it's just in the sense that we always talk about ultron being uh hamstrung mm. by the fact that joss whedon had to set up for ragnarok he had to set up you know the next phase, the, the, the next phase of a you know civil war story. Mm-hmm. You know, introduce the uh, introduce wonder um, at the same time as trying to tell a cool story. It was just spending so much time setting everything else up. It was just it just had no time for its own thing. It was just too long and too much. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure if it was too long or too much. It was just spent like it's like okay, you know, there's they're setting up whatever the Vision's going to do next. Okay. Mm. There is a setup for Secret Invasion slash uh, Captain Marvel two. There mm. is a setup for multi multiverse of madness. You know, like, mm. I just wanted a cool story. Yeah, 
and we ended up getting a lot of neutered finishes like you know we came out of episode eight obviously ladies and gentlemen for those who haven't seen it this is your spoilers warning it is up on the screen saying spoilers so we can talk freely about it but try and avoid major spoilers but at this point i think this is talked a lot (laughs) but we came out of episode eight with the it was the flashback show giving a lot of exposition dump for the character of wanda what happened to her and to get her to the point where she creates westview and then it ends with a big cliffhanger of agatha harkness having those tendrils of things around the two kids and it picks up right from there and it ends up being um, a knockout drag out fight between her and Agatha Harkness for a while and then it started something really interesting of Agatha Harkness freeing everyone in Westview and they were talking and confronting Wanda about what they had been through this time that was fucking cool idea that they just chopped down way too soon and it was like what this is no you had something really interesting you could have had told so much about the characters both the character of agatha harkness and wanda and the effects that the superheroes have on people without genuinely thinking about the consequences of their actions this is absolutely what the sokovia accords were all about and you just let it die you and it did it again it. it did it again at the end mm. at the end of the episode where wanda has to walk out of town and the people are on the streets and glaring at her giving it and she's yeah. having to put her head down and walk out with her hoodie on and then along comes monarch and completely absolves her of any guilt they never know what you sacrifice you had to give up your imaginary family. They only had to be kept in agonizing, you know, hostage torture for like three weeks or God knows how long. Yeah. Um, but you had to give up an imaginary family, Wanda, so you do you. Yeah. Um, it seems to be one of the weaknesses of the episode, as I've reflected on it, is mm. you talked in the, in the, over the last few weeks, are they setting up uh, Scarlet Witch to be a villain in coming mm. weeks, which would have been really ballsy and a really fascinating place to take. The, mm. the MCU in the next phase, but I think they don't have a balls for it. I think they've done everything, uh, every possible opportunity. They keep going, she did a bad thing, but she's still a hero. She's still good. She's still good. Um, yeah. You know, all the way through. And, like, don't mention the fact she might be a bad guy, right? It's they just seem to be doing desperately everything they can to avoid that. Yeah. And so much of this episode nullifies the big reveal of Agatha Harkness especially the catch music of it was Agatha all along. It's like, well, actually no, in episode eight and episode nine, it's not, she, she didn't really do anything. Why was she doing any of that to test the limits of Wanda's powers? That didn't really come across. It's like, okay. Um, the elements of the Agatha all along video, there's like, oh, her doing magic with her hands whilst Wanda and Vision are doing their magic trick. It's like, what did she actually do in that moment? What was she testing Wanda with? Are, are you saying that she's the reason that Vision got the gum stuck in him or what? It, it doesn't, didn't make any sense. And then it was sort of like, oh, I'm, 
I want to know about you. So like, okay, why don't you just fucking ask her? And, oh, okay. So we get that one early scene of Agatha stealing, leeching the power. We get no explanation as to why she can do that. And come on, lazy fucking writing of episode eight. I, we need to make a situation where Wanda is powerless. Okay, let's have this exposition dump of runes. Oh yeah, of course, that's what Wanda's going to do, but just on a bigger fucking scale. Come on, you have proven that you are smarter writers and creators than this in the first half of the show. You can do better. And that, that's the biggest problem with me for the last three episodes is it has been very much the interest, the intelligent storytelling and narrative driven, the genuine character based work that has gone on dried up. Vision was just cast to the side. We have an interesting idea of having vision and white vision settling their differences through debate. That is interesting concept they did it in a really boring way and then it's just like okay i've got my memories back i'm gonna fly off they don't even you know they had two post-credit sequences neither of them were about vision being in a cabin somewhere trying to rectify all of these memories and working out which parts of him he wants to keep which he wants to get rid of any character development there okay you chose to instead introduce story elements for a brand new superhero that you've introduced in the TV show and possibly lead-ins to Captain America, uh, Captain Marvel 2 or Secret Invasion, which are well in the distance. What? what I, why did you choose that? It's just... Uh, I think you're right. I mean, they had, a, had their balls to... didn't have the balls to do... Um... Hmm. Um, to actually to actually follow it through, uh, and that's why I went in expecting virtually nothing. Mm. Um, um, and you know what? I wasn't because I expected nothing. I really wasn't disappointed. I had my expectations met, um, mm. which meant that yes, I agree, it wasn't very good, and they really could have done something. So many, many, many more interesting, challenging things with this episode, mm. um, and I think they took. At every possible turn over the last few, two or three episodes, they've kind mm. of gone, yeah, you've got the interesting path, the boring path. They've gone the boring path every time. Yeah. Uh, like, okay, do we do something really cool? The fans are going to get really fucking excited about and just be, you know, like I said, the word is Krasinski, John Krasinski, he's mm. signed up to do MCU films. Maybe not this, but, you know, like mm. all the way through, like remember in Monaco, it was like, oh, I've got this aerospace engineer friend, aerospace, I mean, this is, Peters out to nothing, mm-hmm. uh, or Jimmy Woo looking for. Oh, I'm looking for this missing person. That just peters out to yep. nothing. Mm-hmm. Who knows what you could have done with that? You yep. know, like maybe you know we have someone dressed like Wolverine hitchhiking outside of Westview. You know, do yeah. something, do something interesting, do something yeah. really, really out there and interesting that people want to see. Yeah. Um, instead, they decided they decided to go over the most boring route possible. You don't yeah. even have to do anything with it. Yeah, you could just. But- you- they 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 even don't do anything actually interesting with Evan Peters. The reveal of him just being Ralph Brandy Boner. Boner or whatever. It's sort of like, okay, so that casting him was literally trolling. That was just trolling. 
because it had no connection. You you didn't make that character a any connection to the X Men universe. Quicksilver, you just happened to use it because you wanted to drum up conversation about it and go, "Oh my god, is this it?" You legit, that was designed trolling, and it wasn't even okay. So Monica has been subdued because, oh shit, we've made a powerful superhero that could easily help sway the the tide of combat between Agatha and Wanda. Um, we need to put them aside. Oh, yeah, he's not going to act at all like either of the Quicksilvers. And so he's not Quicksilver in any way, shape, or form. He was just a joke. Come on. Give your, give your audience a little bit of respect. And, and then... I agree. It, it was disappointing. Um, yeah. but they, but, and the one thing that kind of got me thinking was... Um, you kind of give me a bit of a spoiler last week, but if you watched the final episode preview or mm. trailer for the final episode that was on YouTube, um, legitimate one, mm-hmm. um, and um, it had Doctor Strange in it going, mm-hmm. I have a number of questions for you. Mm. And he's not in the last episode. Nope. I mean, we were talking last, you were saying last week, why are they spoiling such an mm. amazing moment? Well, they didn't because... There is one, isn't one? And you're like, yeah. uh, guys, this is getting a bit shit. Yeah. And it, there's, there's just so much that just happens. Like the sudden revelation of this, the, the evil book that Agatha has and just laying so much groundwork down. It's like, okay, you are setting up so much stuff. Why do you feel you needed to stop this show at nine episodes? Why? You have... Because we already know that Falcon and the Winter Soldier is going to be six episodes long. We know that Loki has got a, an unusual number of episodes. They are very... And, and even Kevin Feige has come on record as saying that he is very purposefully choosing the length of these series to tell stories. Like, okay, then use that fucking time correctly to tell the story you want to tell rather than these shitty exposition dumps that are just time wasting when you could organically reveal this information through more or if you don't actually want to reveal it then you just let it lie you move on to the important elements of the story and then that can just be something really fucking cool that people come back to after the fact and you have that 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 legacy that option um to go back and you can like oh i'm gonna rewatch the series i've gone back and rewatched all of this to try and understand agatha's motives and it's like she there's there's what she looks at the fucking camera and says oh and i killed sparky the dog it's like okay why why did you do that the the only thing that it suggests to me that maybe at some point there was a she was using the death of sparky to age the kids up again to test wanda's abilities again and but that gets neutered and that kind of comes through in a little bit of drop conversation where she says oh you stopped at every opportunity it's like well if they were more poignant moments, then maybe that would be a, a more interesting point. And 
that element of choosing right or choosing wrong for Wanda at each point. And if she had chosen wrong, we have a scene with Agatha or anything like that. But there's never any of that. It's it, uh, it's it's incredibly frustrating, and it's not because it's like oh my theories didn't come true. It's just I'm, I'm not I'm not getting pissed because there was no mm. Fantastic Four or yeah. X Men. I I knew not to expect. I know not to expect. I'm just saying that would have been cooler. That would have been exciting and interesting mm. and fun. And what we got was pretty bland. Yeah, it was overall the whole season was pretty good. Yeah, um, I like it. They took some chances early on. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that they didn't keep keep that up because writers don't seem to have ten episodes of creativity in them anymore. Mm-hmm. And if they do, I have no doubt a studio would balk at it and go, "No, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. We need a, we need a sky beam and a fist fight." Yeah. Um, but overall, I liked I liked that enough. It was it was yeah. interesting, and I think it does, if nothing else, add some character to two characters. You didn't have much. Absolutely agree. It does. I guess its purpose is primarily to flesh out and expand the character of WandaVision and officially introduce her as the Scarlet Witch. Overdue, they, but worthwhile. It's it's something that she is a compelling character and they can hang a lot of story, a lot of movies on and around her that it's very important that they've done that. I think it's very important that they've done that. I think that they should have invested maybe a little bit more time splitting the show of WandaVision between Wanda and Vision to actually allow more Vision character development because we had some interesting character development go through and for Vision going from just the Jarvis protocol to one thing to to the next, to the next, to the next. And it was like, okay, this is a nice evolution of the character. Now they've kind of just hit the reset button on that. And it's like, all right, well, back to the state first step for Vision again. And you know that he's not going to have, they're not going to make a Vision movie. It's not on the cards for a very long time, at least, unless they do a WandaVision season two that focuses on Vision or something. They, they've still hamstrung themselves because instead of splitting a nine episode season across two characters and really fleshing both those characters out and having one villain Agatha Harkness that was the cause and effect for each of those character development stories they focused on one kind of fudged it a little bit at the end and just left another one adrift it's like oh fuck yeah Miss mm. Foxy saying they could have uh, been a standalone if they'd kept the sitcom premise. Vision is boring about context. I think he's boring about a character who gives him a bit of flavor. Yeah. It's a little bit like a Hulk movie never really worked by himself, but put the Hulk and Thor together, magic happens. Exactly, yeah. And I I I don't I don't know. It's just it's just annoying because it started off so good so fresh and i was saying at the start that this was the most compelling thing that marvel has made in a long time that disney has made in a long time but if straight away i was kind of like mm, i don't think they're going to do what i want them to do and i don't know whether they can maintain this level of quality and they didn't they didn't they didn't it was disappointing but it's uh, a week and a half two weeks before we get the next 
TV offering from Marvel Studios of um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And it's going to be a very different genre and style of TV from the looks of it. So who knows what's uh, what we're in for? My hopes I, I are low. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, it seemed very action-y. Mm. It doesn't instantly say exciting to me. Mm. Um, and I always felt like Wanda and Vision had more potential as characters mm. than Falcon and Winter Soldier do. But in Marvel, we trust. Well, we know so, what we we know what we're going to get with Marvel. Hey, look, at the be... end of the day, Wonder, Wonder, any reason in the finale of WandaVision was so bad was so disappointing mm. was because the rest of it was so good. Yeah, exactly. So if you never scale those heights, like if if mm. if, if this is strictly mediocre all the mm. way through, I'd be surprised because they don't really seem to do that very often. But then also, me and you seem to be the polar opposite to pretty much everyone else in the world where most people seem to kind of go oh i don't know if i like it when wandavision first started and then you get more and more people like oh that's the most i've cried in a tv show it's so long like what part i yeah wasn't emotional at all for me but no yeah you're right i mean i think but people sometimes they get fooled i think they get bamboozled they're like oh my god i love this show because it's some cool shit happening and then yeah. once they're on board, they just completely forgive it anything. Yeah. Um, and I, I am, I, I would say both of us are not. Uh, we are fairly open-minded to criticize things we enjoy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Sign, sign of, of the times. times. Yeah, it's I think so. Sign of them. Yes, sign of times. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess fans. People get really interested in things. You know, like I mean, it, it is interesting when they eventually turn. Like you know, you 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 get the Star Wars fans. They sat through three prequels. It, it yeah. took until it took until uh, Rise of Skywalker and you know uh, the Last Jedi before they really jumped off. Um, yeah. So you know uh, it, it's not surprising. I'm curious it, but... as to how the test of time will um, judge WandaVision. I wonder. I wonder how people are going to look back on it um, <sighs> because a lot of you know a lot of people now that Endgame has kind of put a nice bow on a lot of the Marvel stuff, people are kind of looking a bit more fondly at Age of Ultron now. And I remember that being a not not necessarily a dark spot on MCU, but a a criticised spot, shall we say. It was a backward but, step. Mm. After the first Avengers movie, Age of Ultron was a backward step. Yeah. Um, so I think it was kind of the first... One of the first times you're kind of like, Meh. Marvel's done yeah. well today. Can they keep it up? And I think the answer has obviously been yes. But yeah. um, that point in time, I think maybe we're a little bit like, are we going to, is this going to be uh, the um, was it the the Batman Forever of uh, the MCU, <laughs> right? The moment where you go, I'm still on board, but I don't know I like where this is going. Yeah. But um, this, does, this does bring our semi-permanent... Um, that section of the show to an end and we're not going to have any new superhero stuff so so to speak next week because oh no nice. Zack Schneider uh, Zack Schneider's League um League of Justice uh Justice League is coming out on the 18th so that's on Thursday next week and Falcon Falcon and the Winter Soldier is on the 19th so it's going to be a bumper episode in a fortnight for, for well, superhero newness. I'm sure our fans, our, our bots, are probably going to be happy if we don't talk about superheroes. I really like how they talk about the superheroes. 
Exactly. It's all we talk about. Should we move on to people who were kind of superhero? One was, one kind of was. Yeah. Uh, in Daisy Ridley and Tom Holland's Chaos Walkers yes. at Chaos. the actual theatre. Yes, um, a real I, movie. Um, and if you are one of our American friends, suffering jocks. <laughs> um, we are allowed to go to the movies. Um, and uh, you don't have to wear a mask. I think you're probably supposed to wear a mask, but I didn't. Um, it's it's nice kind of just being able to just t- take it off. And I, I I love having a more empty cinema. <laughs> I really do. It is. It's like, I, I just, it my favourite thing to do was to go to a half-empty cinema. Um, so this is the... 2021 um, mm-hmm. action sci-fi adventure starring as seventeen um, Tom Holland, Daisy Ridley uh, in a dystopian world where there are no women and all living creatures can hear each other's thoughts in a stream of images, words, and sounds called noise. Mm-hmm. Um, so we meet Tom Holland who plays uh, Todd, Todd. Uh, who and we were never going to know. We very rarely hear that name throughout the. The film you're gonna have yeah, a hard it's, time yeah it's you're gonna have difficulty remembering his name um and we see him walking through a forest and there's sort of a streamy cloud thing hanging over his head mm-hmm. and we can almost hear him talking to himself mm-hmm. um and we quickly learn this is what's called noise and mm-hmm. that he is not actually on earth he's on a planet called the new world mm-hmm. and on this new world as i sort of noted in the synopsis everyone can hear each other's thoughts. So he has to work very, very hard uh, when a preacher who he doesn't seem he's rather afraid of rolls up on a horse to keep his thoughts under control. And his way of doing it is repeating his name to himself over and over again, mm-hmm. which gets a little bit annoying. Uh, yep. Um, then we, 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 let, we, we learn a little bit more about where he lives. He lives on a farm with his dads, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. which is sort of uh, tangentially linked to a village called I get uh, Prentice Town. Prentice Town. And there are no women in Prentice Town. And as far as Tom Holland's character is concerned, he has never seen a woman yeah. girl his and entire he life. Is, he is the youngest person in the settlement. Um, and there, at the same time, we sort of we meet uh, Daisy Ridley. She's on a spaceship in orbit. Mm-hmm. And we learn that the planet that Tom Holland is on is a planet that was colonized with people from Earth. And the, uh, att- the next sort of group of arrivals and Daisy Ridley, along with the rest of her team of scouts, mm-hmm. sent down to figure out what happened to the first batch of people because they had not heard from them since they landed on the planet. Mm-hmm. While they, uh, her probe is flying down from the spaceship to the planet, all the guys, while, as soon as they crash into the atmosphere, they start to experience the noise as well in the sense that they can hear the thoughts of everyone else around them uh, and everyone else can see their thoughts and they freak the fuck out and somehow manage to crash their spaceship mm-hmm. in the process. So just to be clear here, this is a spacefaring civilization mm-hmm. which has figured out how to create craft which will travel millions of light years, God knows how far. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cryogenically freeze. Freezing people. People colonize, colonize mm-hmm. an alien planet, mm-hmm. but their spaceships cannot land remotely. They must be controlled by human beings. Yep. And we can do that today for fuck's sake. We just landed on fucking Mars. Yep. 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 Uh, but yes. Okay. Well, forget that, right? <laughs> so that really, really <laughs> just kind of bothered me, right? Why? Why the fuck would they be? Uh, 
Yeah, but no, the, there's, a, there's a lot of dumb in this movie. There's a real lot of dumb in this movie. So this, the probe crashes down near Prentice Town. Uh, Todd discovers the wreckage, tracks down Daisy Ridley's character, who is Viola, and she is taken to the local mayor, who mm-hmm. uh, we've met a little earlier because Tom Holland had a run-in with his son. His son mm-hmm. played by Nick Jonas. Nick and as, as I as I mentioned earlier, the mayor, mayor Prentice is played by the incomparable Mads Mikkelsen. Mm-hmm. Where, like I said earlier, instantly I'm like, oh, he's the bad guy. I mean, you don't hire Mads Mikkelsen to play the you know, the, uh, the hero, do you? Mm-hmm. Um, that would oh, be- he's the kind, caring guy. Um, the guy who played Hannibal Lecter is not playing the good guy, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, like, oh, that's the bad guy. Um, and we, when we start to learn a little bit more about what's going on here in the sense that women do not experience the noise. Yeah. So in the sense that their, their thoughts can't be heard by men and I imagine other women around them, um, mm. but they can because the noise sort of the streams out of men's heads. They can hear all the thoughts of, yep. of men around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the we learned at this point that Mads tells her, Mayor, Mayor Prentice tells her that, that, the, uh, that an alien species called the Spackle actually murdered all the women, which is kind of a mm-hmm. dumb name. For yep. the, the aliens, uh, came into town and murdered all the women. That's why there are no women there. Uh-huh. And he's very, very, very interested in what's going on with her spaceship and when it's going to land. Uh-huh. We don't get a lot of explanation. We, we get some very dumb explanation about why that is happening. Uh-huh. We quickly learn his his um his uh his intentions are malevol- malevolent uh-huh. in the sense that he wants to figure out where this spaceship is landing so he can take it over. Mm-hmm. And then rule the planet. Yep. Uh, and speaking of the dumb, mm-hmm. uh, I was like, so we already know that. Well, we we, we just saw that they, they there are people awake when they land their ships because they just saw that and they fucked them mm-hmm. up. But apparently, this time they won't be. He's pretty sure they won't be awake. They'll be all asleep when they land their ships next time. Mm-hmm. But they're landing their ships on an alien planet, all asleep. But there'll be no security, meaning anyone can just waltz in uh, while they're all sleeping and just, you know, take the keys, you know, <laughs> and take yeah. it down to Chapel Street and do some donuts. Like <laughs> that's okay. That's what they're. That's what they'll be for. Like there'll be no kind of defenses or doors nope. or uh, no no robot sentiency. Like you, you were know, unauthorized to be on the captain's deck. Mass Michael Fassbender isn't there, you know. <laughs> like, like, like shit, like we saw it in passengers, right? Like Chris Pratt had like weeks to try and melt that door, but he couldn't get in there, you know. So yeah, um, I'm like, that's a very, really, actually quite poor plan. Like, a, do you really need to take over the whole planet? Like, you, like, what exactly is your motivation doing this? And the plan is very weak. Yeah, I, I think. The the biggest sin of this movie is the fact that it is we haven't mentioned this before, but it is based on a young adult novel series of th- trilogy, and this is so planned as the launch of a franchise. This the is launch, the next Hunger Games, the next Freeman. Allegiance. Exactly, it has got hot young talent. It has got a recognizable accredited talented actor as the main villain and it sets 
all these really interesting little points so it's like oh the spackle ooh interesting what is the noise where did it come from why are there no women all of this stuff is it like that's there's actually an interesting concept here none of it is given any time any time they didn't kind of go you know what okay let's just tell one story in this movie now we're gonna we're gonna lay out everything and they don't do a good job the, the, and i'll tell you something that is really i was kind of offended by the things that just kind of floating across the men's noise that you heard conversations and thought processes are like this is kind of an anti-male movie it, it doesn't paint men in a good light. It's certainly not positive. Um, I, I would mm. just sort of think that was also that um, Hello to Crash Bandicoot is watching. I assume new subscriber to uh, to us on the on the the YouTube's. Uh, YouTube's. Hopefully, you're not going to start talking about airplane and the DVD. Uh, that would be annoying. Um, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is a reference. Um, but you're right. Like the things that Tom Holland is thinking about. The amount of times that he's caught in. Um, embarrassing thoughts by mm. viola and you're like uh look i was 17 once it mm. was about 460 years ago um but i remember and i'd like to think that given a world where i grew up in a planet where everyone can hear every single one of my thoughts i might have developed a slightly greater degree of mental discipline um yeah. and uh you know not think about myself shagging the girl who's sleeping next to me, like, you know, mm -hmm. like, like everyone can hear all my thoughts. Now, 17-year-old for Earth, probably going to do that, right? Because you're not used to having your thoughts read. But this mm. kid grew up on this planet completely yeah. having everyone be able to hear everything you're thinking. Yeah. And you're right. It, is, it certainly doesn't have a very high opinion of its male characters. And one one of the sequences that, that was most telling to me was – how they portrayed Tom Holland's character dealing with the death of his dog. It it just felt so hammy and like, oh yeah, this this is how this is how guys deal. They don't want to show their emotions. It's like But you've set up a world where you literally are literally showing the emotions. So why is he hiding it? What, what why why is he so bad at hiding his noise compared to everyone else and why is he even trying to put up this facade when it's so fucking obvious what is actually going on is it like no you're just come on dude <laughs> what the fuck I saw one division. Don't worry, Cortex. I, 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 I don't get it. Unless um, it's just the Coco is traumatized because she thought it was going to be a normal sitcom, but I tricked her. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, yes. Um, I, that is a nice trip. At least you, you showed us something interesting. Um, mm. um, one thing that bothered me about the noise as well is it's very inconsistent. Yes. Um, there's a lot of spaces in the film where he's not giving out any noise. I'm like, he's thinking about nothing. I don't mm -hmm. think so. You're always thinking about something, right? But like, I wish I was at home with a big bag of potato chips. Mm. Potato <laughs> chips. And you're like, you're like, but he's like, no, he's not giving anything out because the plot doesn't need him to be giving any noise right now. Yeah. And speaking um, of which, you know, th there's there's numerous people that ask the question or comment about why Mads Mikkelsen's print, uh, uh, Prentice 
guy is so good at hiding his thoughts. It's like, okay, are you gonna tell us? Oh no, you just you just sent him off down a down a big pit and possibly killed him, but probably not because you want to have other movies and he's probably gonna come back. But well, you I mean, just... movies now. It's worth yeah. noting. So you, as George indicated at the start of this, this film was shot in two thousand and seventeen. This has been sitting on a shelf for almost four years. Now, there were about $15 million worth of reshoots done. I believe mm-hmm. they were done at some point in time in 2019. So, um, as you might imagine, I think they got these two stars first before they really hit the big time. I mean, like, Daisy Ridley was coming off The Force Awakens, but they mm-hmm. weren't quite as big as they are now. Yeah. So yeah. it was a busy two years for Tom and Daisy. So, mm-hmm. you know, once they finished their original shoot, it took them two years to come back to finish this. I think some people I've read go, oh, they look so much older in some scenes. I've got to be honest, I didn't pick that up. No, um, me neither. Um, but so nicely done to the makeup department and the yes, special effects guys who and the uh, the DOP who got that right. Um, but at the same time, you've really got to worry about a film that sat in the shelf for two years. They were like, they didn't want to release this. It was so bad the way it was that they waited two years for pickup shots. Then they waited two years to release it at the cinema. And the only reason it's getting a release right now is because of COVID. Like, if this was normal times, this film would have gone straight to streaming. It would have popped up on fucking Netflix one night. You'd be like, those guys did a movie together? Yeah. I feel like this would have been a a perfect movie to for netflix to have purchased put their name on and it's gone oh for from the people in spider-man and star wars because we can't we can't stream either of those uh, franchises on our platform anymore here, here are the actors and something else they did um it was weak i mean i didn't it wasn't bored you know i wasn't bored i wasn't sitting here going oh hurry up and finish it was hmm. fine but it was so much dumb and you're kind of like yeah that doesn't make sense that doesn't make sense why is he doing this I, yeah. there was a scene one of my more interesting scenes in the film is daisy and and um and uh tom uh-huh. <laughs> i forget the character's names the viola and the other viola guy. and todd um and um they, they uh have to make it basically but basically plot is a chase movie yeah they leave prentice town to try and get uh daisy to safety in a nearby town mm-hmm. um and uh, while they're on this journey to the next town, they encounter one of the spackle. Mm-hmm. Who I thought was interesting. Like instantly, I was when they said, "Oh, the spackle, blah blah blah." I'm like, "Is this like the village? Did the spackle not exist?" Yeah. Um, and so they do exist, and that was actually a really lazy CGI alien who looked. It, looked, at home it looked like, a bit like they just, without actually improving the CGI of it, they just took the alien from Signs. Exactly, it's not <laughs> alien. Yeah, like he's a, it's just it's like it's like they've employed um, Bethesda to do the special effects. Here's one we prepared <laughs> earlier. Um, no one will some, know this is from 2002. Let's reuse some assets. Um, and um, the alien, I'm like, okay, it's cool. It's, it's an interesting little fight scene where where Tom, who thinks the spackle killed his mother at this point in time, mm. goes nuts with his knife and tries to tries to kill him. But mm. Daisy. Uh, Viola says, hey, don't kill him, don't kill him, despite the fact as far as she knows, it's a fucking alien. And yeah. the first alien she would have ever seen in her life. I don't know about you. I'd be kind of scared if I saw a seven-foot alien um, yeah. who apparently goes around killing women. Um, 
so you know he talks him out of killing him and he steps away and they they walk away from each other of a speckle alien never heard never from again seen again in the film i'm like we get to a big finale you know mads is doing his thing he's you know being an arsehole he's using his mm. control of his noise to to beat the shit out of Tom Holland. The circle. the circle is me. <sighs> and it's like, I, I have a pretty good, I mean, I said to you, actually, your superpower is knowing everything is going to happen in the film way before it happens. And I imagine that happened to you in this as well. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's seriously, like, I was sitting there going, oh, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And, and I, I specialize in just absorbing myself into a film. But, like, I was thinking, going, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, okay. Uh, but what I didn't get right was I was just assuming at the end of the film, because we've spent so much time building up the spackle, we had the big scene with the two of them having a fight. They walk away. He doesn't kill the spackle. You know, yeah. but maybe the spackle will come in and actually reveal themselves to be, you know, not the malevolent force that they have been built up to be, but instead be the friendly aliens. Or, oh. you know, at least he's, he by sparing that spackle's life, he's now, you know, won their respect. And, you know, like he's won a... a a life debt, like like from a Wookiee, um, <laughs> you know. Every... <laughs> no, so there was one element that it's. I'm I'm, I I kind of liked it, but they didn't do enough of it, and it was almost kind of a blink and you'll miss it moment. And that's when Viola gets attacked by um, Aaron, the the priest guy. And his noise is just going crazy and it's like fire whipping around him. And it comes through that he wants to be punished. And it's like, ooh, that's interesting. And then it's like, okay, you set him on fire and he burns. Okay. That you you I, I, you, I, you killed an I'm interesting quite, thought. I'm quite quite glad the film isn't shaming, right? If he wants to get punished in the privacy. <laughs> Of his own heart, you know, and it's, it's no one's business between him and the person he's engaged to punish him. Um, it was it was nice seeing a, a healthy, you know, a, a healthy depiction of a, a sex positive uh, member of a clergy because they're <laughs> well known for that. Well, I don't know. It's a member of the clergy ch- chasing. They're supposed to be about seventeen years old. Both of them. It's like hey, it reflects reality. Okay. <laughs> um, a little bit old, don't you think? <laughs> I'm a little uh, old for my tastes, but I think I'm, I can satisfy this one time. I'm going to hell. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that was really irritating that they set this whole alien species up and did nothing with it. They set up this yeah. preacher guy as being having an interesting story or something interesting was going to happen with him because there was a conflict between him and Mads Mikkelsen. There was a disagreement mm. between them about the best way to proceed. And I thought that would provide an interesting uh, you know, an interesting sort of spot for a bit of dramatic tension between those two. Yeah. Someone we thought was a villain, he does kill a dog. So, you know, I yeah. mean, you, would, you probably know coming back from that. But, you know, <laughs> there's, there's also the scene that um, uh, Nick Jonas, the, the man, Pickleson, the, the mayor's mm-hmm. son, yep. kills uh, Tom Holland's dad, or one of them, and just shoots him. And you're like, all right, he's going to cop it later. Mm-hmm. Nope. He just disappears at the end of a movie with the rest of the guys. Um, that was, yeah. So, the other interesting, yeah, because one, one positive I'd like to bring up on um, it was there was an insinuation, and only an insinuation, of um, the fact that because there were no women, that, that um, Tom was raised in a loving same sex relationship by same sex parents. Yeah. 
That now, was interesting. You know, that is that is not done very often in sci-fi. It's not no. done often in Hollywood, and it's done even less in sci-fi. When it is done in sci-fi, it's kind of done pretty often either like uh, in Star Trek Discovery now, where it's slapping you in the Agenda. face the whole time. Yeah, they're being so obvious about what they're trying to get at, and mm-hmm. they're doing it for, because you know, uh, diversity, um, or in Star Wars, we're like, but you can, you can notice right in the background behind a spaceship, slightly mm-hmm. blurred to the left of that tree over there, there's two women, what could be women, if you squint, you know, and, and dump the, if you've only got a 4K TV, you could almost see two women kiss at the end of a film, right, because we're diverse and we like, we represent. But we'll cut that scene out for China just in case. Um, <laughs> you know. We don't want to offend the biggest growth market. So, you know, that's a kind of, I, I can't, I mean, you know, there was a course, I think in Star Trek Beyond, they they had um, Sulu had a boyfriend or something, but again, it was. Yep. It was a blink and you miss it moment. Blink and you miss it, and it was kind of handled in a very, you know, we're doing this because, you know. Yeah. We, so, it's see, we're, we're, we're cool too. They're ticking the diversity box, and like, mm-hmm. again, and I, and I don't think actually, um, I, I don't think, he, uh, you know, a lot of people were particularly cool with it. His name escapes me right now, but the guy who played Sulu on the original series, I can't believe I can't think of his name. Um, George Takei. George Takei. I don't think he was too keen on that either. Yeah. Um, don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. Mm. Um, but so it was interesting to see a an actual, you know, a normal, logical, and really affectionate same-sex couple mm. just parenting a kid because there's no women, right? So yeah, what are you going to do? Um, so, um, and so, I mean, I don't know if that's like, would be seen as like, maybe not so cool because they've kind of, they've ever stopped it, you know, being homosexual to, to the fact there are no women, but I, I think any representation is a good one. Um, I, I, I like the fact that it was just so casual. It was just, we're not going to have that, that adorable moment where they, one holds the other one's hand and so like they're there or anything like that. It's just this is their world. They have come to terms with whatever their um, thought process is from having women around them to finding comfort in each other. It's just like, nope, these these guys live together. They're the parents to, to Tom Holland, and that's it. We're not going to talk about it. We don't need to. We've just shown that this is, in spite of it being a hard environment, this is a loving home that uh, Tom has lived in. And you, um, it's, it's, just, it's just there. Mm. It, it's, we don't have to have a big flashing sign going, this is our diversity, this mm-hmm. is our diversity. It's no, hey, she's not alone. She's got us, you know, kind of moment. Like they always come back to you with Marvel. Um, this is how you do it. If anyone's wondering yeah. about why I criticise mm-hmm. so many of the big companies and why they do it is because I think they do it in a way that's completely unnatural. This is really natural and nice. Um, and um, we, I don't know if it gets actually ever clear which one's really his dad. Yeah, it's a guy who survives and helps out later on, but um, I'm not sure. I got confused because I thought that that was him, and then there was something about um, there was some line I think about not actually being. Oh, I've just lost Travis. Um, hopefully he'll come back. But there was a line in this movie about possibly. Oh, he's back. He's coming back. He's in the. Both of us. I, I can't. I can't see you anymore. But um, can you oh, see me back. now? Yes, I can. Excuse our technical difficulties, listeners and viewers. Uh, I, we have a, a feral bandicoot mm-hmm. in the vicinity of yeah. the show who seems to be causing some um, some trouble. Mm-hmm. 
It's uh, but uh, thankfully he's not being affected by global warming. Yeah, I think we've talked enough about chaos walking. We, uh, so, we've uh, spent uh, too much time. One on quick it. question: Would hmm. you recommend it to someone? Um, if they've got young kids and they want something to put on in the background, yeah. Otherwise, no. It's it's cardinal sin. Is it's kind of boring. It's not the worst film I've ever seen. Well. But- that's not saying very We've much. We've watched plenty of Catherine Heigl movies overall. You can only help with possums. Well, possums are bandicoots, aren't they? Uh, no. They're the same thing. It's uh, possums, they're, bandicoots, they're marsupials. Yeah. Um, foxes, they're all the same. <laughs> no, foxes are not the same as bandicoots and possums. Foxes are not marsupials. Wait, is oh, a possum a marsupial? So. I don't know. Uh, I, I will Let's move on to more interesting things. <laughs> so I'm going to just quickly talk about Clarice episode four. I'm not going to spend any time on it, but I'm now hooked. Episode four, it's finally really bringing some interesting things together. The amount of time that they've spent building each of, each of the characters up and introducing them and slowly weaving the story, it's good. It's getting good. Um, so I'm I'm in for the rest of the 10-episode the ten, ten run, I think it is. So I will have more to talk about probably next week. Upvote um, to you for sticking at it. Yeah, I mean, it's taken a long fucking time to get there. I mean, four episodes in and I'm finally invested. It's just been just is is like watching a kettle boil and it's finally got there but um you know it's 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 good i think if you can if you can get through a lot of heavy narrative build up then it hopefully it'll it'll pay off but we'll we'll see we'll see the the thing that i really do want to talk about though is um a vietnamese movie that um is on netflix and I was somewhat taken aback. It's called Fury, F-U-R-I-E. And there are elements, there's there's a lot of obvious elements of sort of like, um, you think of like um, old boy Chanwook Park style violence with Taken, Liam Neeson sort of like, oh, my loved one has been taken, I'm going to seek revenge. This is along those lines. Is there another um, title? Uh, it's not on IMDb under that. F-U-R-I-E? F-U-R-I-E, yeah. Oh, there we go. Sorry, just... right, there you go. It's kept taking me to Fast and Furious. I've got it now. <laughs> no, it's not a Fast yeah, and Furious be... movie. I think I'm comfortable mm. saying that. Yep. It is also, um, it's, uh, Vietnamese name is Hai Phung which is the name of the lead character, an actress called Veronica No. Um, so Veronica No stars as an ex-gangster who is lying low in the countryside after becoming a mother, but she can't escape her violent past when her daughter is kidnapped. And this is pretty good, actually. The action sequences, Veronica No is really good with the fight sequences, and the fight sequences are brutal. There is an element of comedy to it. I don't know whether it's intentional or not, because most people in Vietnam, because cars are incredibly expensive to run in Vietnam, most people have motorbikes and like uh, tuk-tuks and things like that. 
And so there's there's a chase sequence where these the kidnappers have got the daughter and they're going along the river and she just steals a moped and starts going after. But it's like a, a kind of a comical slow car chase because it's like, but with this interesting dramatic music. But it kind is kind of a weird setting because it's like, okay, this is a serious moment and they're they're filming it seriously, but it's just that noise. <laughs> so, so it kind of pulls away from it a little bit but then you it, this is a really good um movie for telling um going through and doing kind of the memento chris nolan thing of a lot of flashbacks to elements of the character and it just informs they they do it intelligently though where in the narrative storytelling as you're watching the movie from beginning to end it informs for the characters actions reasons and thought processes and explanations as to why this mum who is a debt collector in a podunk town um on the couple of hours outside of uh, ho chi minh why she is violent why she is a good fighter and it's eked out throughout the story and it just continues you continue to get more and more invested in this character and there's a final fight sequence that she has um with the leader because it seems like you set they set up this this world where the um gang leaders seem to all be women and they're all fucking nuts and vicious like you just see flashback sequences to um haifung just being told by one of the girls who works in a nightclub oh that asshole's here and she just gets up walks over grabs a bottle of uh, of beer and just completely just smacks purposefully right in this guy's cheek so that she's aiming for his fucking eye and she just slams his head down and tells him to get the fuck out and it's like holy shit these people don't don't take no shit this is this is cool and the the other boss one of the other bosses um is this other woman who is just vicious she kind of looks like a character straight out of a goddamn mortal combat movie she's leathers with braided hair coming on one side shave on the other she just looks tough and like an mma fighter and she uh she and haifung have this fight sequence and the end of it what haifung does weaponizing the knife it's quick it's brutal and i was just like holy fuck did i just see that and i had to rewind and watch it again so like that's fucking cool that was cool and it's a good payoff um so it's it's a really good action movie out of vietnam that i had no idea about and it's like okay would you describe it as a kung fu movie i suppose so yes um it but it's it's like think very much think taken with martial arts set in vietnam and when you think of you know most people who haven't been to vietnam will just think of like the rice fields and a lot of uh, mopeds and things like that and then you go into the cities where it's 
you know, lots of bars and nightclubs and neon lights and just this, this city that comes alive at night. That's all on display here. But um, you get a little bit more information about kind of some of the, the society that goes on around it and the a little bit of hierarchy of the expectations and uh, of people's jobs that they have. And there's a, the, the mother-daughter story is actually really good. It's told really well in this great way that just is the driving force behind everything about Hai Fung's character. And it pays off nicely as well. It, you kind of get to the end of it and go, whew, okay, that was a roller coaster. I enjoyed that. All right, cool. Yeah, I recommend nice. it. Yeah, you don't come across um, a lot of Vietnamese cinema. No. Um, the, <laughs> the, the, the actress who plays Hai Fung, Veronica mm, um, No. Veronica No has a little bit of work in the state. She was um, Rose Tico's sister in yes. the uh, is it the uh, one of the Star Wars movies, uh, The Last Jedi. Um, so I think that was her in the bomber at the start of a movie. I imagine. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. And yeah, so she's also been in the Old Guard mm-hmm. and the Spike Jones film last year, The Five Bloods. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's uh, obviously going places. Um, yeah. She was in a Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon um, mm-hmm. sequel. Um, won't hold that against her. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't see it, but come on. Like, I mean, that, that film was so good. It, it got pretty lambasted. Um, but, um, yeah. Was so, a, was that a Netflix it was. film as well? It was, it was one of the the big acquisitions of Netflix before they um, became the bargain bin of movies. Um it wasn't great. It wasn't great. But never, never mind. Yeah. Anyway, that is interesting. It's nice to see a bit of world cinema. Um, yeah. You know, and I think I said it a few weeks ago, but the spotlight on stuff from other territories that mm-hmm. Netflix has been acquiring or making in those territories now mm-hmm. popping up in high-profile spots on Australian mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully American Netflix. Yeah. You know, give us a chance to broaden our horizons. I hear people talking about dark quite a bit um there's a japanese one that keeps popping up on on my netflix that i've heard some people talk about as well so um if you i just, I just sometimes are so tired afterwards <laughs> i don't have i've got the energy to read subtitles i've been learning vietnamese for nearly a year at this point how is that going did you find yourself picking up occasional words or phrases like out of a hundred words maybe three and it's like, oh, I knew that. Oh, I missed everything else. Like they said, sorry. They said sorry. They definitely said sorry. <laughs> of course, I know. I know. A British still... person is going to learn. Oh, I know. That would be a Canadian person, wouldn't it? Sorry, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can still watch a movie in Russian and pick up, you know, probably three out of a hundred words here and there. Like, you That's know, a bit done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, or you know. Uh, Nichibo or something which means nothing. A little words that you you'll pick up <laughs> on the common ones, and you'll go from there. I'm sure. But the best way to do it is once you're able to travel again, yeah. and you're able to visit Vietnam, and you are completely immersed and surrounded by it for God knows how long. Um, it That's will, the only will... way I'm ever able to remember any Italian or Spanish. <laughs> hey, it's the best way. To, it worked for me. Like it was six, four weeks in in Russia because uh, all the work you're putting in now will pay off. Um, I think. And I from, so. take this from. Take this from somebody who's never learned a language in his life. 
<laughs> the, the 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 big thing is like write it down and i can kind of i'm starting to actually learn to translate a lot of the grammar because grammar in vietnamese is really weird um but then when it's just spoken it's so quick it's like oh well what i need to learn the phrase please slow down but the first the first phrase that duolingo tried to teach me is the goat is at the ferris wheel so i think i'm a long way off from please slow down <laughs> I, I think i told you that first thing i learned in russian was i'm not american <laughs> important in that part of the world fortunately they do speak a lot of english in vietnam uh yeah, yeah a lot of tourists right stuff so yeah hmm. now that is my quick little review of um, Fury and just Clarice winning me over. Do you want to talk about Bill and Ted? Yes. So this is now available on Stan, I think, um, in Australia. Mm. For, on the streaming. Because it's been popping up for rental, I think, on Prime mm. for a while. But I'm like, yeah. as I say every week, fuck you. I'm not paying extra. Um, <laughs> this isn't the 90s. I'm sorry, guys. You don't get to rent movies anymore. On a streaming service, mm-hmm. uh, I think that shit. Anyway, uh, Bill and Ted Fest Music is the long-awaited third film in the Bill and Ted saga. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, we have Keanu Reeves playing Ted, and uh, Alice Winter coming back to play his first actual proper starring role since 1993. Wow! Uh, what what uh, movie was that? Oh, uh, God, don't ask me. It pops up a lot in the trivia, but it, it's the first one he's done. He's done bits and pieces, you know, guest spots here and there. Uh, it's called Freak. He was in a film called Freak in 1993. Okay. I think might have had a bit of Keanu in it as well. Um, uh, but uh, Brooke Shields, wow. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, so he, he's mainly focused on directing, I think, these days. Mm. Uh, you actually have to take apparently take acting lessons again to get back into the swing fist, but I think he's been working on that. Both of them have been trying to get this off the ground for a while, which is surprising to me. That with Keanu on board, he says, Yes, I'll do it. Mm. And I have to imagine he didn't do it for very much because this is pretty low budget shit. That you wouldn't have someone who's willing to fund it, but it yeah. took a very long time to get the funding up, and here they are. Mm-hmm. Once told they'd save the universe during a time traveling adventure, two would be rockers from San Dimas, California by themselves as middle-aged dads trying, still trying to crank out a hit song and fulfill their destiny. This is a directed by Dean Pariso or Parasot. I don't know how to pronounce that. He directed uh, Galaxy he, Quest. He directed Galaxy Quest, um, which is one of the funniest science fiction comedies mm-hmm. um, you'd ever want to see. Um, it's one of the so, best, uh, well, it's possibly the best Star Trek movie of all time. Yeah, I'll pay that. Um, <laughs> um, uh, the uh, the all owes it a debt, um, and <laughs> he's, he's got some heritage. He's got some yeah. got some runs on the board, um, and we have main stars. We have Kirsten Charles playing Kelly, who plays Rufus's daughter. Rufus, of course, played by the great um, George Carlin. Yep, in the original two films, his actual daughter is called Kelly. So. Oh. Uh, it's a bit of a nod to his little nod, yeah. Um, plant naming his character Hurt Kelly. Um, we have uh, Keanu, Bill, and Ted are still working to record their hit song that will, you know, change, you know, save humanity, unite humanity, and save the universe, and blah blah blah. They're still mm-hmm. living with their, their princesses, Elizabeth mm-hmm. and Joanna, who are played by different actresses again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and they have a daughter each now. Um, uh, 
Keanu Reeves' daughter, played by Bridget Lundy Payne, is Billy. Mm-hmm. And Alex Wood's daughter, Thea, played by Samara Weaving, not to yet another Australian actress kicking goals in um, mm-hmm. the United States right now. Uh, and the daughters, I think, may well be the best part of the film. Okay. Um, I've read a lot of really positive things about this film. Mm. Uh, it's got a 6.19 IMDb. It's got a 65 meta score. I found it a bit weak. Okay. Um, in, in a week in which I watched Coming to America 2, which I won't spend a lot of time <laughs> on, I'm going to say it. I really quite i I don't want to say I liked it, but it wasn't anywhere. I, I've been talking that film down for months. Mm-hmm. No, Coming to America Two is nowhere near as bad as I thought it would be. It was pleasant enough. Okay. Uh, if you're a fan of the original, if you don't like the original or have not seen the original, keep walking. You're not mm-hmm. getting anything out of that. So interesting that I came around to watching Bill and Ted face the music. And I, I didn't like this very much at all. I found it kind of kind of lame. Uh, Miss Foxy, were you saying Coming to America 2 was worse than Bill and Ted or was worse than the original? Because, of course, it was worse than the original. Um, <laughs> but um, Bill and Ted 2, um, I just, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they've taken steps to make Keanu and Alex Winter look older than they really are because... Keanu looks way fucking older in this movie and he doesn't anything else mm. uh, that I've seen in recent years. Um, and maybe they're just the other way around. Maybe they're just doing their best to make him look super young uh, <laughs> in John Wick and stuff. But he looks really old here. And it's just kind of kind of pathetic uh, to see two characters who have basically not progressed in 30 years. Uh, I think if I had a friend who hadn't progressed or grown in 30 years, oh. I think it was kind of pathetic. Uh, and, look, I mean, you know, this is a very lighthearted uh, comedy. Uh, a lot of appraisers praise got is because it's not cynical at all, unlike mm. a lot of comedies these days. It's just really positive and fluffy and upbeat, mm. uh, positive. Um, but I am incredibly cynical, so... Mm. Uh, that doesn't really, really score any points for me. Um, but at the same time, it's like, and I know they're supposed to be lighthearted comedy characters, but I'm like, they're the same idiots they were 30 years ago. And that mm. was fine when they were stoner teens. Mm. But when you're a 50 year old man who has kids, I'm sorry, I just don't, I, I don't know, I just don't buy you not having grown or changed or progressed or developed any new characteristics in 30 years and playing exactly the same character from the first two films. And, you know, probably they had to play the same characters, but that's probably why the fact the sequel doesn't work. Um, mm. I remember Clerks 2. We're going back now. Oh, yeah. Now for Clerks 2, and I didn't like Clerks 2 a whole lot um, because Kev, we love Kev. Mm. Um but I don't think Kev does sincerity particularly well. It comes across well, a little bit forced. Mm. He does Kev stuff right. But at the yeah. same time, that film did concern a very similar kind of story in a way. We had um, the two characters whose name escapes me right now from the original Clerks film. Dante and uh, Randall. Dante and Randall. Very good. I should remember that. Uh, I love that film. Mm. But Dante and Randall were kind of you know almost Bill and Ted-esque characters. In the yeah, kind of. Like, you know, 
it's a little bit different. They were smart guys in brainless jobs yeah. where, you know, Bill and Ted were just brainless guys. But, you know, they were kind of goofy sort of, you know, teenage directionless mm. ne'er-do-wells. But yeah. by, by the end of Clerks 2, I mean, it, they haven't quite had 30 years. They've probably had 15, 20 years. Mm. Um, but they are facing down the fact that they're adults now and they can't be like they were when they were kids. But yeah. I, so in, while Clerks 2 is a deeply flawed film, I think, in hindsight, and, my God, I hope they never do Clerks 3, but Kev keeps threatening to. Um, <laughs> but I think, in fact, that I liked the fact that they decided to to stare down. Kev can do laughs. He can do gross-out humour. He can do gags about donkey shows in Tijuana, right? Completely mm. filthy, you know, humour. Um, at the same time, as trying to show a more serious side to his characters and go, these guys are now in their early 30s and they're facing down the fact that they're men now and they can't pull the same shit that they could when they were, you know, 1920. And and that is a a transition point that I think a lot of people have to go through. And I found that an interesting concept. And maybe, obviously, that is not what people are tuning into a Bill and Ted film for. They're not tuning in for a bit of philosophy about... But I think it could have done it. It would have made it a more poignant story for me to kind of go, well, Bill and Ted grew up. Um, yeah. I don't want a dark, gritty story. I want Bill and Ted are forced to grow up maybe and they stare down the fact that they're 50 now and they're closer to death now than they ever were before. And Especially in a, in a, a, a society that we're in now where there's more and more um, rightful pressure on parents to be better parents and make the world a better place for their kids and things like that. It's like, okay, you've got these two characters that were destined to save the world and they've just focused on this one avenue that they were very repeatedly shown as not being any good at of music until they use time travel to get to, to kind of fix that problem you could very easily have had this scenario where they are kind of going okay because it you know it just doesn't make them very sympathetic characters if they're not good parents if you're still if you want them to be likable and loving and you know in get back invested in them then this there's it's not the way that you show them you don't show them as the same idiots where their actions they've not realized the consequences of their actions it's it's not that they're bad parents um it's just that they haven't progressed as human beings i mean i mm. think you can still be a goofy brainless 20-ish kind of guy mm. and still be a loving pen lovely kids um so a bit of plot the mm. basic gist of a film is they had bought mid their fifties. They still haven't written the song to unite the world. They're bought to the future again by Christian Schaal, and they're basically told you've got seventy-seven minutes in which to write the song that's going to unite the world, um, or all of existence will you know the world existence will cease to be right. The entire mm. universe will collapse in on itself. Um, and their way of doing it is kind of actually a kind of funny idea in a way. They go, well, we don't know how to write this film, so let's just go forward in time from our time period in 2019 and find the Bill and Ted's in the future who wrote the song mm-hmm. and steal it off them. <laughs> and that's kind of a cool idea. It's an interesting idea, right? Let's go into the future and steal the song off ourselves after we've written it. Yeah. Um, which isn't a bad idea. It's just 
done so poorly and they encounter themselves continually encounter themselves in the future and they're kind of shitty human beings for the most part in the future and they're really shitty themselves and you know hijinks ensue as they you know they encounter themselves in the future and they try and steal the song off these shitty future selves at the same time as i sort of said earlier the highlight of a film their daughters mm. uh to learn that, that this is going on and to try and support their parents they go back in time to assemble a band to support them in writing this, you know, song. So they go back and they, uh, you know, convince Jimi Hendrix and Louis Armstrong and uh, Mozart to come back to the future and join their parents and the band. Um, huge, huge props here to Bridget Lundy Payne. Mm -hmm. um, there, uh, whose pronouns are they, them? FYI, if you're wondering why I'm about to do it. Um, <laughs> She, uh, he, so their performance is really incredible because um, Bridget really pulls off an incredible, um, ch almost channels, uh, 1989 Keanu Reeves in in their performance. Uh, it's in the mannerisms, the facial expressions, um, okay. the, the, the voice, brilliant performance because you go, okay. I didn't have to stop and think. They are playing Ted's daughter. Samara Weaving, mm. by the same token, probably not. I, I, I think that's the thing. Like, I think Ted was the the more memorable character. Mm -hmm. And so Bill's daughter does again. Samara Weaving does a wonderful job again, evoking you know uh, Bill, mm. um, a, a younger Alex Winter's character mm. from the original two films. So they're you can, they're really good because they actually. The character is his characteristics fit. They're a hmm. bunch of goofy 17-year-old, you know, kids. Hmm. Um, and you know, being doofuses works for being a couple of 17-year-old kids. It doesn't work quite so well for 50-year-old dudes. So mm -hmm. uh, and their perform their um their journey back in time to collect these musicians evokes again a lot of stuff that happened in the especially uh, excellent adventure. Which is really fun, and I enjoyed it. And um, and then they let the uh, the other highlight of a film is uh, an, a a robot is sent back in time from the future to kill Bill and Ted by the future people. Mm -hmm. And a robot has a name, Dennis Caleb McCoy, which is very funny. Uh, and the robot is played by Anthony Carrigan, who plays yep. in Gotham. He plays Victor yep. Zaz in Gotham. Yep. He is one of those guys that like you see him in a TV show or a movie. He's like, oh, he's a bad guy. He's not a bad guy in this, though, really. Um, he is initially. Okay. But he think of um, the character of death in Bogus Journey. He would be more akin to that in this. And he has some okay. absolute, like, the very few laughs that are on offer in this film, he gets most of them. Okay. Um, and he has some really good material. I was looking at going, wow, he is really funny. And just his, his, again, his physical comedy, his mannerisms, the way he delivers his lines, I really enjoyed them. Um, there are, it's not that there are no laughs in this film. There are a few, especially towards the end where they go, uh, when the robot zaps people, they get sent to hell. So okay. um, Bill and Ted actually have to go back to hell to try and rescue their daughters. Okay. Um, and there actually is a scene where they're talking to a couple of demons and showing them a photo. Uh <laughs> It's, just, it's the conversation between Bill and Ted and a couple of demons in hell. 
was actually um, <laughs> it was kind of it was very funny. Um, okay. And so there are laughs in there. So again, despite itself, some of the gags land. But mm. in uh, what uh, you know, it's ninety minutes. Uh, I think I watched Excellent Adventure three or four months ago, mm-hmm. and that ninety minutes went like like that. Yeah, it drags significantly oh. more. Oh, that's a shame. So it's not terrible. It's not terrible. Um, it's just not very good. Mm. Um, and How's never- William Sadler coming back as death? He doesn't get a lot of work, but, oh. I mean, it's okay. You know, okay. he's there. He's fine. Uh, I just, again, he he was a, a little bit like the robot in, in this film. In Bogus Journey, death had a lot of the best lines. You sank my battleship, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, and it's like, I feel take you back, you know. <laughs> they melvin me, you know, like, and um, um, it was a, it was, he was so funny in that movie. Um, and I'm like, he was, it just doesn't, he's getting 10 minutes of screen time. Oh, uh, okay. And right at the very end. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's not the worst thing I've ever seen. It's not good. If you are in the mood for an unnecessary remake of a film made thirty years, sorry, an unnecessary sequel to a film made thirty years ago, my vote goes for Coming to America too. Wow. Okay. Okay. Eddie Murphy's back, baby. It is the most streamed movie on a streaming platform for the entirety of COVID. Not surprised. A lot of a lot of the kind of the buzz around it was, oh, in these hard, horrible times, it's nice to have something comfortable and fun. It's all callbacks. It's, it's, it's all one hundred percent. Do you remember this? I remember. Do you remember this? I remember. <laughs> That's all it is, literally. But I love the original film, so I enjoyed. It's not the worst uh, worst trip to go on. It's, I enjoyed the callbacks. That's why I said if you didn't like the first one or you haven't seen it. You're not going to like it. Go with Bill and Ted. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I do have one in my backpack, but I'm going to save it because we're going a bit long. We're going long again, yeah. We're going long again, but I have been watching Manhunt Season 2. It's about mm-hmm. Richard Jewell. Uh, it's on Stan here in Australia if you want to catch up. But I will save that hopefully for next week if I remember. Yeah. I've still got to actually uh, talk about Demon Slayer uh, um, on Netflix. So we'll finally get around to those things next week. So, uh, a roundup for the episode. This has been episode 104 of the Armchair Producers. We had our chain movie, which was W, 2008's Oliver Stone, Josh Brolin movie. Next week, we will be talking about Syriana following Jeffrey Wright. Um, we talked about the ending of WandaVision. We have our thoughts on uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. We will have thoughts on Zack Schneider's Justice League, but they will both be released after Wednesday, so that it'll be two weeks before we talk about those. We have a little tease that I am now invested into Clarice after episode four. We talked about Chaos walking at the cinema and we're both rather disappointed with it. I talked about the Vietnamese action movie Fury on Netflix and Travis talked about Bill and Ted face the music on Stan in Australia. 
Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for another extended episode of Armchair Producers. We're not intentionally, intentionally talking longer, but we just maybe have more to say. Who knows? Maybe we're just um, uh, babbling too much like I am right now. But we will, see you all. <laughs> we will see you all next week. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on twitch.tv slash the fry brain, Armchair Producers on um uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash armchair producers. And on uh, YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash Frybrain Productions. Uh, we do appreciate it. We uh, we got our very own Crash Bandicoot subscribed today. Thank you very much for that. Thank you so much um, for joining in on the chat, Missy Fox, uh, Miss Foxy. And we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Armchair Producers. We are a weekly podcast every Wednesday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. We appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to our podcast. And if you'd like to follow along live, please go to twitch.tv slash thefriedbrain, where you can actually also donate to us, as well as watching us live on youtube.com slash Productions or facebook.com slash Productions. Thank you, and see you next time. Bye-bye.